Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today, we're going to dive into a number of the unrealized versions of the creature from the Black Lagoon, but we're here to actually focus on Guillermo del Toro's unique journey with this franchise and IP. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Terry Menard of Gaily Dreadful fame. Terry, how's it going? I'm doing really good, Josh. I'm excited to be here and and chat about uh, Guillermo del Toro and his journey. Yeah, because he's got a big journey. In fact, his journey continued on today. We'll get into that a little bit later. I just want to know what's going on with you in your world and like what kind of stuff are you working on right now geez i'm real busy recently with like a lot of <laughs> podcast recording because i'm also the the co-host of scarred for life mm. and so that's kind of picking up steam uh recently with a lot of recordings and then we're gonna be i don't know when this episode's dropping but we're also gonna be in san francisco for the unnamed footage festival so i'm trying to get stuff prepped for that for when we're gonna be gone so it's a it's a busy wow. time so for people that maybe don't know what is that that festival all about what's their deal yeah it's a found footage festival where i guess it focuses on found footage and screen life and pseudo documentary and anything that that kind of falls within those umbrellas and so there's a lot of a lot of really good um indie found footage films i know this year they have this 
uh, I'm using quotation marks, lost film from 2011 mm-hmm. uh, that was like a kind of a found footage Survivor epi- like movie. Cool. Like based on Survivor that they were trying to, at the time, uh, sell as a real um, like reality TV show before, you know, it, it just vanished. And that's playing. So I'm really excited to see that. Yeah. I'm, um, yeah, I'm excited for you guys to go to that festival. I'm going to be heading to the Overlook the week yeah. after. I feel like has festival season begun already? Oh, I know. Say? I'm telling you, it's 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 ridiculous. Like I had Sundance <laughs> and then it was quiet for a bit. And now between like South by is popping up and mm-hmm. unnamed. And then we're going to get into Overlook as well as Panic Fest is coming out in April. Yeah. And Salem. It's like everything's oh, yeah. happening. And don't even talk about the fall because oh. will we survive? And if no. we do, what will be left of <laughs> us? Um, well, on today's very special episode of Development Hell, we're going to go down kind of a unique path. As I mentioned, we are talking about The Creature from the Black Lagoon and its many sort of unfinished, unrealized remakes. But we're also taking a bit of a route with Guillermo del Toro and talking about his unmade remake and how that turned into a very different movie that I'm really excited to talk about and will reveal, I guess, a little bit down the line. Terry, if it's okay with you, maybe I could start off by giving a brief seminar on The Creature from the Black Lagoon. This is a 1954 American classic horror movie, black and white, released in 3D, horror movie back from the day, and it was produced by William Allen and directed by Jack Arnold. You might have heard of it. It's one of the very classic universal monster horror movies. Um, this is the one with the Gill Man, the, the sort of swamp man. And it starred Richard Carlson, Julia Adams, Richard Denning, and Whit Bissell. So this is a movie about a group of scientists who have decided very sort of unfortunately to go down to the Amazon. And this is where they encounter a humanoid amphibious creature deep in the rivers down there. They know him as the creature, but sort of, I think, through the zeitgeist, we're sort of getting to know him as the Gill Man. This guy was played by Ben Chapman when he was in the rubber suit on the land, but underwater was portrayed by a different performer, Raquel Browning. You know what's interesting, though? So the person that that created the initial uh, suit or the design for it Mm -hmm. um, was a woman. and. Her story was not, uh, she was wiped clean from having anything to do with it. Like the, her co her, uh, cohort who was male took all the credit and she sort of vanished from Hollywood. But there is this really interesting book out there by Mallory o- O'Meara uh, called The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, who was the woman that created the suit initially. And it, so it's it's a really good book. So I think if, if for fans that are interested in the creature, they should go check that out. Well, I guess we're still doing this to him in the industry, but back then it was really rough, just like complete yeah. erasure. Yeah, this production was filmed in 3D and originally projected by the polarized light method. In 1975, it was released into theaters yet again with the classic red and blue sunglasses and was finally dumped on home video in 1980 on both VHS and Beta. Now, this is something I didn't know, probably should have known, that there were two sequels to this. Was this something you were familiar with before today? Oh, yeah. See, I was raised on Universal monster movies my dad was a huge fan and so that was my actual introduction to the genre uh was through dracula frankenstein all of those but also uh creature from the black lagoon and funnily enough i 
my first encounter with this movie was a VHS that my dad had rented that ended up being the 3D version and we didn't have glasses for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think we watched for like 20 <laughs> minutes and then just gave up because it was like red and the red and blue lines, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. It had texture to it. <laughs> sure did. I mean, th- that's hilarious. Yeah, I have yet to see these sequels. I'd love to. Uh, there was Revenge of the Creature in 1955, which I think was just a year later. And then there was The Creature Walks Among Us in 1956. And I think that one was from a different director. Do you have memories of these? Like, do you remember how you felt about the sequels? I remember seeing them and that's about it. (laughs) I I honestly do not remember them at all. (laughs) Well, my first question for you, which you kind of touched on is like, so yeah, when did you first encounter these movies? How old were you when you were introduced to this franchise and to this whole world? Oh boy, I must have been about seven or eight, I think, when I saw when I saw the the first movie for the for the first time, mm-hmm. um, and like I said, I was a huge huge fan of like the Universal Monsters, so I had gone through all of them. And then what I honestly remember is the way that this character was utilized after then, particularly in like Monster Squad. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always like a big fan of Gilman or the you know the creature, and so yeah, I was just growing up. This was a repeat <laughs> for me. This was a big one for me. Uh, you know. It- since you were like so involved with these movies growing up, I'm wondering like, how did the creature rank among the monsters for you and your dad? So I think for both of us, it was actually kind of low when I was a kid Mm -hmm. uh, because I was more, my dad was more drawn to like Dracula and I was more drawn to the Wolfman and also uh, Abbott and Costello's version when they did, when they met Frankenstein in one of their movies and it had like all the monsters in it. Mm -hmm. That was like the one that I would, continually returned to as a kid so it was more of the horror comedy route but uh but yeah this one as a kid ranked a little lower for me but as an adult uh it's easily my favorite that's so interesting because i've visited i think most of the classic universal monsters but this is one i've never made time for and i'm wondering do you think that's common like do you think in the zeitgeist of horror and classic horror that the gilman is kind of like at the bottom of the ladder that he kind of gets the shaft I actually do because um, I think it was more towards the tail end of when those, the Universal was having its run, and so Creature was in nineteen in the nineteen fifties, whereas mm-hmm. like Dracula and them were decades earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I do feel that you know by the time that that was getting introduced, people were moving on to different things than the Universal monster area. So I, I do think that there pro- it probably was not as appreciated as much as some of the earlier ones. Mm-hmm. Although it's much more, it's a much better film than most of those original ones, if I'm being perfectly honest. Like the filmmaking behind it is top notch. Well, I was thinking that too. I saw it for the first time last night and it's really beautiful, especially those underwater sequences where, you know, they, this must have been, you know, complicated technology now, even now with, there must have been giant pools that they were shooting this in really beautiful techniques underwater and, it was like really something to watch. Um, how was it on this revisit for you? Did it hold up? Oh, it uh, it exceeded my memories because it's been a long time since I've uh, revisited a lot of the Universal Monsters, in particular this one. Um, so, yeah, I, when I was watching it, I was I was astounded by the uh, the cinematography, particularly underwater, just the the way it looked and the way. I was thinking about the performances because the the guy that played Gilman was having to hold his breath for two to four minutes for, yeah. at a time, and it's just you see that and you see what they're managing to create here. It's a 
It's really spectacular for the time. It's really beautiful. And it starts off with some pretty cerebral storytelling where they start off at like the beginning of the formation of the planet and they do it with some, I don't know, like very interesting techniques kind of experience. I don't know if it's experimental, but it feels experimental when you watch it. It's also an interesting start because it kind of (laughs) takes on uh, a Christian mythology to it, but also Uh science because it's like the big bang and billions of years and, you know, evolution and all that stuff. But then there's also like God created heaven and earth. Like, so it's like Mm -hmm. this, this combination of, of religion and science that I was, I was surprised to to see. Honestly, Well, then did God create, the the creature you know like was this on purpose was this was this a big accident you have to wonder how he played into the whole thing do you think it's scary like i know that it's a very different time to watch something like this but can you imagine why this would have frightened people back in the 1950s absolutely i do think now watching it uh the music is a little too bombastic for me (laughs) uh there's like a refrain that continually happens whenever the creature is about to attack or does attack. And mm. it just got a little, it's a little excessive for me um, as an adult, but uh, yeah, I can absolutely see how this movie would terrify people. It's there's the, that the first shot of the hand coming out of the yeah. lagoon reaching and just the kind of, it looks really good. It's a man in a suit, but it looks really good. And particularly for the 1950s, uh, I would say that that would absolutely be, I think it'd be terrifying if I had saw this in movie theater as I a kid. So too. And there was some Guillermo del Toro quote that I came across, but can't recall exactly what he was saying, but it was all about that hand. There mm-hmm. is something really frightening about the slow sort of very unpurposed sort of steadiness of that hand coming out of the water. And for the first few attacks in the film, you basically only see the hand. You see the hand sort of attacking people in the head or in the face, which is a little silly, but you can imagine that really messed with people back in 1954. Well, it's the same thing that, that Steven Spielberg would use like 20 years later with, with Jaws, where it's like you don't really see what's happening until later on in the movie. You just see like quick shots of it. Yeah. And so I think that that sort of not really giving you all of it allows your imagination to play with it. You see this army, like what the heck is that attached to? And uh-huh. so I do think that that this movie plays at that really well. Yeah, there's some, it's, I like that you brought up Jaws because there's some of those very tense scenes where someone, or I think she is getting out of the water and you're just I'm like, is she going to get, is, her, is she going to grab her foot? No, but you're like, you're on edge, worried about it the whole time. And Absolutely. It's tense. It, very intense. And I was actually thinking as I was watching this, that Jaws is indebted to this film. Oh, for there's, sure we get like the shot of, of her underwater where it's like almost the shark POV from, from Jaws. We get mm-hmm. moments like that where there's, there's focus on when the ship's trying to escape at one point and there's branches down, you know, there's, there's the, uh, the shot of like the, the winch that's breaking. And I'm like, okay, that's like the shark cage. Like there's a lot of like one for one shots that I think Steven Spielberg probably referenced when he was making this movie. Can I share with you one of my family stories that kind of reminded me of one of these moments earlier on? Please do. So my grandmother used to tell me the story when I was little. She was Indonesian and was raised on a, like a tea plantation in Indonesia, which is on a river. And she told me the story like multiple times, but one day her sister was on a riverboat and there was someone in a, like a smaller boat next to her sort of paddling along next to the larger boat. And he was staring at her. 
And and she was like a young, beautiful woman. And I guess she was uncomfortable with being stared at. And she looked at the man and was like, what are you looking at? Like very dismissive, kind of rude. And her feet were over the edge. And he said something along the lines of, oh, I was just watching your feet because I forget what animal. It was like a crocodile, alligator, something large, like right underneath. Oh, my. (laughs) And, And she almost lost her toesies. And I think about that a lot. And this reminded me of that. Yeah, I I, I started realizing recently as I've been watching TikToks that uh, I have a fear of deep, dark water. And okay. All right. so I, I think the idea of like, you don't really know what's lurking just below that, like surface mm-hmm. level is really is really creepy, particularly for specific people. Now, because it's a film from the 1950s, it's going to be. Um, aspects of it that don't hold up and there was definitely some racism that might be worth noting and even like an accidental reflection on environmentalism is that something that you sort of also caught watching it I don't think it was the point back then but you kind of it's hard to uh, ignore it on watching it now yeah absolutely the fact that we have um people of color being utilized uh in the way that they are yeah and they're the ones that mostly get killed right away away. uh yeah it is definitely does not really pass that that test about uh you know like black people or dark people or people color getting uh killed in the white people living like this definitely does not pass that that idea, although it is very, I would say it does touch on environmentalism in ways I was not expecting this movie, mm. a movie from the 1950s to do. Like how? Well, just the the idea of this this serene place, this this creature, and yes, he's portrayed as like to them evil, but he is just living. He's minding his own business, and it mm-hmm. is like the riverbed of civilization, and we are encroaching on it. And we want to take this creature and either kill it or take it back and study it and tear it apart. And so I, I think there is a, a slight critique of the way in which uh, we kind of tear through nature that yeah. is here. Well, they say pretty directly, like, if you look out at this river, this is exactly how it was, you know, 500, 600 mm-hmm. years ago. And, you know, by placing like a bunch of white colonizers down there and with, you know, their weapons and you know they're going to come back and make a mess of the whole place and yeah there there's something there that kind of leaves an icky feeling i also was thinking that the the scientist that finds the fossilized hand is not a very good scientist because he just cuts it off and i'm like I no that too. i was like oh my god you're supposed to chip around that thing sir he's <laughs> like you're really fucked up and you're not were you even using gloves no no he's, he's just, just like manhandling it, it i'm just like are you kidding me I was so sure because I'd never seen it before that that was like the future and that like that hand was like going to be like the dead creature and then we're going to like go and find out what happened to him. But no, it's just his friend, I guess. Just his friend. He's probably pissed that he broke his friend's hand off. I mean, I would be. I'd be mad. I'd be mad. Also, what happened to your friend? And are there more friends? Probably. Maybe the sequels tackle all that. (laughs) I don't remember them tackling all that, but maybe. (laughs) Maybe they do. I couldn't say. Um, so something that I've definitely am fascinated with based on, you know, the conceit of this podcast are all of the unmade follow-ups. And basically we've never received one, even though there was like a, like a good 10 of them in production since the 1980s. Um, I'd like to touch base on a few of them before we head into the land of Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you would want to help me out with sort of 
giving a brief seminar on the first couple of failed reboots in the works. Yeah, sure. I know that in uh, 1982, uh, John Landis was trying was basically campaigning for for Jack Arnold of the original film to do a remake, which Mm -hmm. I thought would be kind of cool. I think I think, you know, this would have been really interesting to see in the 80s just because, you know, that was the kind of the time where a lot of 50s movies were remade. And they did a really good job with them from the blob, the fly, and the thing. It would be interesting to see, although I think they might kind of ruin what this thing was going for with with (laughs) 80s excess, probably. But (laughs) Yeah, probably. uh, Uh, But yeah, I know that was like the first attempt. Wait, before you move on, can I just tell you what my, you know, we all have favorite decades. Yeah. You know what my favorite decade is? What's that? My favorite decade is the 1950s as presented by the 1980s. Oh, okay. So you know, like, like, like Greece things. or like, they just like, don't totally, oh, I don't know that made them in the 70s, but they don't totally get it right. But there's something about it that I find, I don't know, very comforting. It's nostalgia porn. <laughs> oh yeah. Big time. Like, like layers on layers. Layers on layers on layers. On layers. Okay. Interesting. Onion. So they wanted the original director back. I'm okay with that. Yeah, that would have been, it would have been interesting to see. So I know that the script was written by Nigel Neal. I believe ah. that's how you pronounce his last name. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the original script for Halloween 3. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the one, correct me if I'm wrong, the one that went into production. But then he was removed from production after Dino De Laurentiis had the final cut of the film. And he wanted it to be much more violent and action packed. Which again, eighties excess. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, his script involved two creatures: one that was destructive, and the other calm. And I, I don't know. This it would have been interesting to see, but I'm I'm actually kind of glad this one did not get made. When I start thinking about what they probably wanted to do with it, I just don't think bringing in the original guy from the nineteen fifties was going to. I don't know. I guess the obvious answer is like do something fresh. Mm-hmm. I think, and it needed something. It needed sort of like a new take, and I'm not sure if that old, presumably white guy would have had it in him. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I guess all the directors in the 1980s were also old white guys, but they were less old at the time. <laughs> <laughs> true. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, why don't you give us the next one in line? Sure. Uh, so then 10 years later, John Carpenter was involved. Oh, and that would have been interesting. I know that uh, Rick, <laughs> I know that effects wizard Rick Baker was hired to create the early 3D sculpts for the project, and that would have been interesting. John Carpenter in the 92s, that would have been like I would have been very fascinated with, with that. I yeah. often get this franchise mixed up with the Swamp Thing universe, <laughs> and okay. I. And I also sometimes get Wes Craven's like lesser titles m- get mixed up with John Carpenter's lesser titles. So I like I definitely would have been interested to see how like a John Carpenter 1992 Black Lagoon movie would hold up against something like Swamp Thing. Interesting. Huh. Would you have wanted this from John Carpenter? Would you have wanted Maybe. to see his version of this? I mean, look. I like some of John Carpenter's movies, uh-huh. but as his career went on, I think he had more misses than hits. And of course, he tackled another amazing, like another classic '50s horror movie with The Thing, and turned that on its head and created something really phenomenal. But what was that like? The really early '80s, or at least in the '80s, and this was, you know, in a different era for John. Yeah, but it would have been interesting because I mean, this movie would have come out the same the same time as. Uh as Wes Craven's people under the stairs. So that would be, that'd be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. 
well, I know that someone else of <laughs> rather like large note was next on the chopping block. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Peter Jackson. Damn. In 1995. Shit. And he wanted to develop King Kong instead. And I mean. He did. <laughs> he it took him another. Did. What, another 10 years? Yeah. To do it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Wow. I guess they were really preparing to give him the world well before Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'm trying to think because at that time in 1985, what what had he? What had I he it was only those those like little splatter movies that I'm right. Aware of. That's what I was no, thinking. No, there was um, Heavenly Creatures. Did that? Oh, did that come out in 95? I, th- I think that was. If I had to guess, I would say 94. Okay, but that's a guess. So should we look into that? Should we? Just... <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling it up. Right okay, now. okay. I have to say, usually I'm pretty good at guessing your your yeah years. Ah. Ninety-four. Fuck yeah! Look at you. I'm a year psychic, just so you know. Just so you know. Wow. And I don't actually know the info, which would be more impressive. <laughs> um, okay, so this was right after Heavenly Creatures. They wanted him yeah. to do Black Lagoon. Interesting. I mean, he could have. This guy could have pulled it off for True. sure. But the the team, <laughs> the writing team behind it. Um, I okay. don't know. Space Jam. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Trading places. No twins and kindergarten cop so the people that brought us space jam and then peter jackson and then creature from the black lagoon tell me you wouldn't want to see that in theaters it's not going to be good but you want to see it oh this was totally a horror comedy based on this i think i i hope so (laughs) I, i don't know for sure though but i'm i'm definitely fascinated i think this was around the same time that he was developing and oh no, this was a few years after he was developing a Freddy Krueger movie because yeah. he was going to do the sixth entry, which was pretty cool sounding. And then they went with something. Are you familiar with all the Nightmare movies? Um, oh my, I, sorry, I can't just assume. I am a Fredhead for life. Okay. okay, me too. Okay, well then you know that part six is it's rough stuff. It's it's something else. It's a so bad. Freddy meets Looney Tunes, and like I'll definitely watch it about forty more times before I die. But it's horrendous. Oh, it's 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 ab- okay. It's horrendous, but it's not as bad as five. Oh, see, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> I think five is misunderstood. It's underrated. I kind of like Ugh. it's a part of that mil- that middle trilogy. It, it, it's. It's still creative in a way that six kind of lost, lost that magic. Like some of the kills are still like bonkers, crazy town banana pants. And I feel oh, they like are actually six still has a couple of those. So what am I saying? Wow, you're you prefer six to five? Very interesting. No, I mean, have to note it. Down. This is like <laughs> very low, very very low. Like there's a gulf of of distance between those movies and the rest of the franchise for me. Okay, if someone was like, you have to pick right now, we're either going to be putting on part six or the remake. Part six. I see. I think I'd pick the remake only because I've only seen it like once or twice. So I'm, I am very, I I do want to revisit it to see what's going on. It's horrible. (laughs) Yeah. I remember being bad. It's (laughs) it's boring. And I'm sorry, if you're going to like, if you're going to take iconic moments from the original one, which I'm happy with, with you doing, you got to at least meet, if not exceed 
those moments. And the iconic <laughs> Tina death is not iconic in the remake. And I'm like, no, all I'm going to be doing is sitting here <laughs> comparing this to the original, which is a perfect movie. Okay, but you know what they do beat the original on? Mm-hmm. The uh, the Connie Britton death. Which if you... Uh... She's pulled to the mirror, right? Yeah, yeah, which is better than the cardboard box getting pulled through the window. <laughs> you have to give it that. Do I, though? And Connie Britton. I, I prefer no cardboard box. I love her. <laughs> She's great. Ugh. And then Rooney Mara just being like, I hate Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was like, stop. You don't respect it. You need to leave my house. But it has Kyle Gall- Gallner in it. I know. What a cutie. He is. Um... The cast is actually pretty good. Like, the cast is, like, a talented group of people. Oh, it should have been good. It should have been good, yeah. It wasn't, though. We Where's Freddie at? Huh? Where <laughs> yeah. is she now? I Hiding with the creature from the Black Lagoon. They're just making out. Ooh. I'm okay with Give it. They're both movie. hot in their own different ways. Give me that movie. Mm-hmm. Like, who would you hire for Freddie? For Freddy? Yeah. Not the actor for the, like, who you'd hide or make it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would have to go with some, like, I honestly, an indie director that, like... Whoa. Not indie. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, probably. That's probably the way to go. Like, I, I just, I think that they need to go back to the original, go back to making a scrappy little horror movie. You know who I'd hire? Hmm. Oh, God, what was his name? Ronnie Yu. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Bring back the you, okay? <laughs> did did oh. we do Freddy versus Jason? Yes, what do we did? Of course, and <laughs> Bride of Chucky, the two and Bride most of Chucky. influential, important horror films, I think of all time. Oh, that's that's a take. Um, would you be okay if I maybe dug up a little bit of the info on the unmade Guillermo del Toro version of events? Yes, please. So next in line, which I believe was 2002, IGN, our friends over there, reported that, yes, best friend, BFF Forever, Guillermo del Toro, was officially attached to this remake. But I think that our friend over there, who just won an Oscar today and we're very pleased to hear it, had a very different vision of what he wanted to see than the studio had in mind. Uh, he mentioned that he wanted to see it a little bit more from the creature's point of view. And more interestingly, he wanted the romantic relationship between the woman and the creature to be a little bit more fruitful, a little bit more um, successful, I guess. And the studio said, who are you? What are you talking about? You are immediately fired. And so they let him go. And then they hired some Hollywood hack named Teddy Serafian. Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, that sounds right. That's the Maybe. best we're going to get. Um, who wrote, are you ready? Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines to write the script in 2003. And thank God that never happened. Um, but yeah, so it never happened. And we just gave you guys a taste of a few of the many, many failed reincarnations of this film. And I think from here... We're going to sort of talk a little bit more about Guillermo del Toro and his relationship with the creature from the Black Lagoon, because he didn't really give up and he would go on to make a movie that was his version of this trope or these stories. Um, so Guillermo del Toro, Terry. Yes. Are you a fan 
what's your what's your relationship with gdt uh love him would wage a war with him me too for him me too i would kill for him i would i yes i would i would i would help him hide the body even for sure i love him so much he really can't do anything wrong my favorite movie from 2021 was nightmare alley and i don't think anyone else feels that way I fucking loved it so much. Did I you? did too. Did you? I feel yeah. like I'm so okay. Thank you. I'm love to hear that because I don't hear it enough. It's a very so. I, I one of the critiques that I have heard is that people were talking about how Guillermo del Toro's is a little too romantic to do a noir. And while I kind of get where they're coming from, I don't find anything really romantic about that movie. In fact, no. I find it very dark. And I think that. I think there's like a warmth to the filmmaking behind it, but I think the story itself is just upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's completely brutal. There's no light at the end of the tunnel, and it works. I um, think it works really well. And it's just so beautiful, too. Everything he does is just like a spectacle, and I just want more of it when it's done. And I think that movie kind of got mm, the shaft. I think it was underrated. And I th- also because of when it got released, I think it was just when Omicron hit. So it was a big financial bust, mm. which is just too bad. Do you have a favorite Guillermo del Toro movie or movies? Yeah, Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, well, that's such a good one. Do you remember <laughs> like what your first encounter with that movie was like? Uh, absolutely, I do. Uh, I remember. So I'm at the time because like, you know, he was known for Mimic and Blade mm-hmm. 2 and Hellboy. Those are the ones that I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more Hollywood version of it. And I remember seeing those and being like, okay, these are okay. I don't see what everyone is like gaga for with this guy. And then I remember Pan's Labyrinth started getting a lot of press and a lot of awards buzz. And so I went to go see it in the movie theaters when it came out. And I remember just sitting there and being transported to this other world that was scary and romantic and deeply depressing and i vividly remember just bawling in the movie theater when the movie was over it affected me so much mm-hmm. i mean listen i rewatched the shape of water today and within the first 10 minutes i was blubbering and i don't know why because it's not particularly sad in those first few minutes but there's just something about how he tells a story how he frames characters specifically how he frames like ladies on screen Mm -hmm. that really like gets to me immediately. And I guess I, I I think the same for you. Horror is everything to me. Like it's my number one passion in this world. And he has a way of getting into horror the exact way that is my preference, which is through a little bit of fantasy, a little bit through like the eyes of a child a little bit through like the fantastic element. I know that he's a huge fan of scary stories to tell in the dark, like the original Mm -hmm. book series. And you can tell that he's a scary stories boy. Like you can feel that in everything that he does. And I just really, I think I like, I just relate to, to his tastes so much, like more than any other filmmaker. And so it feels really personal for me with these movies his movies kind of bring me back to that childhood wonder. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because he has a obvious love of fairy tales. And so all of his movies, um, 
I think most of, if not all of his movies are, are there's a fairy tale quality to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that may be that, and, but I, I don't see that in Nightmare Alley. Maybe that's why it didn't strike the chord with a lot of people. But like every other movie of his comes across as almost like a fairy tale. And so it brings you back to that kind of being a kid reading Grimm's fairy tales or, or whatever fairy tales you were reading at the time. And that sort of sense of wonder that would come with it. So I, I do think that he is able to kind of tap into that childhood fear, childhood wonder, childhood jo- joy and awe. Just, ah. He can't be beat. He can't be beat. It's really, really magical. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Hellboy movies, which is mm. not exactly my usual cup of tea, but the way that it, they sort of balance like the fun comic book world, but also like uh, like Lovecraftian horror at the same mm. time is just, it's like you're not seeing anything like this anywhere else. And yeah, it's always like a treat when he, when he makes a film. Did you see Pinocchio? <laughs> I have actually not seen Pinocchio yet. Um, I liked it. it. It definitely carries in that sense of like childhood horror a little bit mm. in, in like a more wholesome way. Like there are a couple of characters that are kind of terrifying, even though they're good, you know, the whole concept of like scary angels. I feel like he does mm. that really well. I could see that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this fella, ever since he was a kid, was a big fan of Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think really wanted to make a version that was true to him. And even though the 2002 film kind of fell apart, he wasn't going to let that stop him. And by 2017, he delivered The Shape of Water. And according to Variety, and this was back in 2018, he got the idea for the film when he was at the age of six Mm. and he saw the 1954 creature from the black lagoon with all the underwater shots of the gill man reaching out for Julia as she was swimming around. And he thought it was really romantic and exciting. And as a six year old, he really assumed that the two of them were going to end up together. And he was actually shocked when it ended the way that it ends, which spoiler alert, like they kill him. Like it does not end happily for the gill man. It sure does not. It doesn't. And he said, wow, like, I wish they would have ended up together. And then on quote, he said, I decided I would someday have to correct that, which I think is really beautiful. Um, We're talking about how romantic his works are. And this one is romantic in like all of the literal ways. And it like makes me really emotional. Terry, would you be comfortable maybe delivering a bit of a brief seminar on the shape of water? Uh, I sure can try. Let me get out my my glasses. And <laughs> okay. my... Yeah. So the shape of water is from 2017. Uh, it's a romantic fantasy film. Guillermo del Toro directed, of course, written by del Toro and Vanessa Taylor. Mm-hmm. It stars Sally Hawkins, uh, an incredibly creepy yet somewhat campy Michael Shannon. <laughs> Uh, Richard Jenkins playing a gay guy that I love. Doug mm-hmm. Jones is the titular creature. Um, Mike Michael Stuart Stolbark, which I always forget he's in this movie until I start watching. Wait, and Octavius. I think I think he was um, the Russian. Yeah, oh. what's his name? Why can't I think of what his name is? The yeah. Doctor. Yeah, Doctor Hofstetter Stetler. Yeah, I mean he's in such a Halloween costume that it's kind of hard to recognize. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and then I interrupt you before you said the last name. Octavia Spencer. Hell yeah. Who I love. Me too. She's queen. 
She has a, a really fun cameo in 30 Rock one episode. Really <laughs> what? What is it? She so Tracy Jordan gets into directing towards the end of the show. Okay. Iran, I think in season six, maybe or season seven, all actually. And he wants to do a, a story about Harriet Tubman. And so he hires Octavia Spencer to be um, okay. to play Harriet Tubman. And she turns out to be basically a walking Tracy doing everything that Tracy would do, just like leaving with with her like posse and being a complete <laughs> ass. Everything that Tracy was doing, she was doing back then. It was really funny. But she's Did she play herself or she was just yeah. playing? Oh my God. No, she plays herself playing Harriet Tubman. She is makes a very small. I have to just make sure it's actually her. Yes, it is her. Okay, do you know which Halloween movie she's in? She was in a Halloween movie? <laughs> Can you guess what Halloween movie Octavia Spencer is in? No. <laughs> which um, one? I can't. She is in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. She plays oh. a nurse that gets terribly murdered. Okay, I've not seen that one. Well, you haven't seen Rob Zombie's Halloween 2? No, because I hated the first one. Oh, it's horrible. Um, but I'm sure you've heard the internet pretend that they like the second one more. People do say they like the second one more. <laughs> they say it. I actually personally think I like the second one more too, but like, it's like saying I like something more than... I like, like the flies on the shit more than yeah. The shit. yeah it's like okay. <laughs> I guess I guess that's true. It's like I hate beets, so like I like you know mashed potatoes more than beets, but I don't love mashed potatoes. You don't love mashed potatoes. I do. It's a horrible, horrible, <laughs> horrible example because I fucking love mashed potatoes. But I thought maybe people would like just go with it because oh, they're kind I'm of sorry. gross. Sorry, uh... Like I thought, I thought I could get away with it because I couldn't think of anything else. I do find mashed potatoes and beets often are in the same meal. Is that true for you? It is in I, my family. I I don't actually think I've ever had a beet. Oh, really? And maybe it's like a like a Eastern European Jewish thing. But like you have schnitzel, you have mashed potatoes, and you have beets. And they're like, eat it. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't. I won't do it. Wait, okay. So where were we? So Octavia Spencer's in this. Love yes. to see it. She's. What did you think of her performance in this film? Um, I thought I thought she was good. I, it kind of was channeling like the help maybe a little bit. So like mm-hmm. I I don't know, but I I thought she was fun. Um, yeah, yeah. I didn't think it really gave her that whole lot to do. So for people that maybe don't remember, what was the Shape of Water about? Oh yeah, so set in 1962 in Baltimore, Maryland, it follows um, a mute custodian. That's one played by Sally Hawkins um, at a high security laboratory. And they have captured the humanoid amphibian creature, not the Gill Man. Although, really, this could be a sequel to uh, yeah. Creature from the Black Lagoon in an alternate yeah. universe where Mark and Dave end up kissing and then taking the creature with them. They kissed for sure. Absolutely. Sorry. That mm-hmm. 10. Just Who's the top, that. though? Oh, I think. Is it, is it the blonde? The blonde is Mark, right? And and the oh, uh, he's mind. the guy in charge. I think okay. Mark's in charge. Okay. okay so okay. I think I think he'd be a bossy bottom. Yeah, yeah for sure, one hundred percent. He like he just had that kind of rude energy. Yeah. Um, the men in that movie, sorry to like interrupt, but were so naked. Oh, they were wearing the shortest shorts possible, Little and they were shirtless. Shorts. Uh, yeah, the whole time, and I was like, I guess people didn't care that men were naked. I guess no, we still it don't. looked virile. Yeah, that's a perfect word for it. So interesting how you can have like nude male sexuality, but like 
the lady bathing suit was like a snow jacket. It was huge. <laughs> right. But right. the boobs were pointy, so that's something. <laughs> right? Yeah, love, love pointy boobs. They were boobs. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, Sally Hawkins's Elisa falls in love with the amphibian creature and decides to help him escape. Uh, this movie was filmed in Ontario, Canada Woo. from August to November of 2016. Sweet. And then it was uh, screened as part of the main competition at the Venice International Film Festival in August of 2017. Mm. It uh, was awarded the Golden Lion and oh. then it screened at TIFF. Sick. And then, you know, it was playing in limited release in two cities or two theaters in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I remember when that was happening, and I just was like, come to Nebraska. I want to see this movie. And it took forever <laughs> for it to finally get to me. Oh, it, it didn't, because it, it went in wide release, right? It did. But it did. Not but right like, away. yeah. So it was like, I mean, because you, you know, you'd hear about this movie from Venice and then, you know, Tiff, and then it was like in New York at the beginning of December. And by that time, I'm just like, I want this movie now. And it was almost a month later, I think. Like right before Christmas when it opened wide. It, hmm. I never got to say what my favorite grandma movies are. It may be a tie between Shape of Water and Nightmare Alley. There's something about these later year period pieces by him that are just, I don't know, so fucking good. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he has such a fabulous career, though. Like, it's it's hard it's you I can know. pick at most any of his movies except Blade mm-hmm. Two. I'm sorry. I know people. What? Like what? You canceled? She's canceled. I can't. You're canceled. What? You hate Blade Two? What's, where did that come from? That was so violent <laughs> and hateful. <laughs> the CG in it is just so horrible. Yeah, it's not good CG, but it's just such a fun movie. Um, fair enough. It's funny for a man that is such a king of genre and king of horror. He's really not delivered very many horror movies. No. Like, is there, like, what, two proper, maybe three proper horror movies? Because there's The Devil's Backbone. Right. There's Crimson Peak, which is arguable. And then there's Blade 2, which is arguable. Uh, I mean... Is, is I, that it? <laughs> like, <laughs> Okay, I, I personally will say Pan's Labyrinth is a horror movie. I know people will fight me on that one. No, but I'm, I'm, I I respect that. I say it's a horror movie. Listen, I'm one of those people that I anything can be horror. I, I I'm with you on that. Yeah, but at the same time, it's not a horror. Movie. <laughs> it is a horror movie. Oh yeah, you're right. I can't I can't <laughs> say that. It's not. No no no. I'm being a silly silly girl. But like, Mimic they're still well. they're they're not. They're, there's truly only one like like pure baseline like no other subgenre. It's a horror movie from this guy. Who is perceived to be kind of king of the genre? Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen him get involved with uh, the Silent Hill video game he was going to be working. Uh, on. God, I we've done a full episode on that. It's I think uh, our only our only video game episode was on that fucking game, which is the most uh, fuck horrible horrible cancel thing that they could have ever done. So, and then they took it off of off of the off of the network too so you can't even play it anymore oh i know is it back did i hear no. that like no I, okay it's not it is maybe the scariest game i've ever played we're talking oh, about yeah. pt the playable trailer for silent hills the guillermo del toro unmade sequel um 
and I once called it Guillermo del Toro Silent Hills, and I've never had the audience be so mad at me because <laughs> it's not his. It's Hideo. It's Hideo Ka- Kojima. Yeah, it's it's his. It's his. Or- <laughs> he he's first and foremost. So I know that now. Okay, I've always known, but <laughs> I will respect that now. Um, do you remember the trailer? There was like a. It was there was no game footage in it, but it was just like the most fucked up, like nasty, insane trailer for the game that they released back in the day. Yeah, I do. And oh. I was like, I want this so oh. bad. Why? And well, we're getting new Silent Hill, and they look good. Yeah, we'll see. I know. Which of the new? <laughs> so, have you seen the trailers for all of the new Silent Hills? Yes, I don't really remember. That's fair. There's so many now. So, uh, but I because they were getting a remake for Silent Hill Two. They were getting the one that takes place in Japan. Yeah, Forte or something. Yeah, Silent Hill F. (laughs) And then there's one more, which is the one that I'm the most interested in, which is called Silent Hill Townfall, which I think it's by like Anna Perina. Like, oh, they do good games. They do. And they make my favorite kind of games, which are like not real games. It's just like it's basically a movie, but it's a game when you just like click and walk around and weird shit happens. Yeah. Um, and it's truly my favorite kind of game. So I'm excited for that one the most. Are you a game, big game buff? Oh, I'm a huge game buff. Okay. My favorite game of all time, and I have a hard time finding people to connect with me on it, is uh what remains of edith finch oh that's a good game oh thank god thank god it's one of those things people never can connect with me on i love that game so much i played it right in the height of lockdown okay and so now i have really imprinted on it (laughs) yeah yeah. i I mean i really enjoyed that game my favorite game if you were to ask me of all time is bloodborne okay i don't know much about it tell me tell me more uh, have you ever played any of the FromSoft games? No, maybe. Okay. I don't uh, so. Dark Souls. Yes, and it was it was so hard. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> uh, so this is like Dark Souls, except that instead of blocking, you do a lot of dodging, and you're basically hunting monsters in a fantastical take on like uh, Victorian England. Cool. Called Yarnum, and it's uh, cosmic horror. There is giant evil gods that have been buried under the ground from falling from the sky there is they take the blood of them to do healing that ends up turning people into beasts it's like nice. bringing in universal monster movies it's bringing in lovecraftian eldritch gods it's bringing in everything i love gothic it's just it's great and then it's really really fucking hard cool okay maybe i'll find that i wonder this is maybe the gayest thing i'll say today i wonder if it's on switch um, it's not. It's a PlayStation only game. Why is there nothing on Switch? It's the only thing I want to play stuff on. Um, interesting. Okay, can I tell you what my actual favorite video game is of all time? Yeah, please do. Um, American Mickey's Alice is oh. my favorite video game of all time, and it's actually why I started this podcast. I'm so sorry, everyone at home. You've heard this so many times, but um, yeah, I was obsessed with. They were going to make a film. Wes Craven was going to direct a film, and it was like a scary version of Alice in Wonderland. And then Sarah Michelle Geller got involved and my little grade eight brain was like, I can't wait. And then it never happened. Yep. And I guess I didn't realize back then that like more movies don't get made than actually get made. And my obsession with development hell kind of spawned from there. Yeah, I could see that. 
Um, so back to the shape of water. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about this being per- like this new vision of the creature? Does this feel like it could be canon for for the creature from the Black Lagoon? Does it feel like a totally different thing? Like where does it line up in the legacy of the creature of the Black Lagoon? I honestly, I think I personally think that this is what would happen if, uh, <laughs> you know, David and and. Uh, What's his butt? I can't think of what his name is off the top of my head. Mm, the creature? No, Mark. Mark and David. Oh, oh of course. Capture, sorry, 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 sorry. Yes. <laughs> capture Gilman and bring him back because mm-hmm. there. I think Michael Shannon's character, I think, is a really good stand-in for either one of those those characters. Oh, yeah. to be perfectly honest, and the way that there's a little bit of internalized. Uh, homophobia there there's a lot of toxic mm-hmm. masculinity going on there mm-hmm. so i honestly think that this could could have been like in a different world where the creature from the Black lagoon ended differently this would be canon for sure he's like a realistic version of what those men are for real yeah absolutely wait what made you call him i mean i i agree but what made you describe him as campy i it's really I think and it's I don't I don't think it's it's I don't think it's tension intentional, but there is the moments where he is at home and he is with his family contrasted with what he is like outside of it. And then you get like the the, the fingers that are turning yeah. rotten yeah. and he's sitting there smelling his fingers. There's an obsession <laughs> with smelling fingers in this. Yeah. His wife does it earlier and then he's sitting there smelling his is rotting finger. There's like, I don't know. There's just a little bit element of that kind of campiness <laughs> to that performance. And he gets, he gets really twirling mustache villainy by the end of it. Um. Yeah. Okay. So that, those are good, good reasonings for the campiness. How do you think this film handled its queerness? Oh, I think, I think this movie understands outcasts. Mm-hmm. so incredibly well and the people that are marginalized by society i uh my heart broke for for poor um richard jenkins's character my god me too when when he goes to this pie place that he keeps ordering these horrible key lime pie that look like jello like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what is going on there but it does not look <laughs> like a key lime pie and his no. fridge is filling up with them just because yeah. he wants to keep going back to this guy that he's attracted to who turns out to be a homophobic racist yeah it's, it's really just sad. like it was really sad it breaks it my heart f- it made me feel really single honestly on this watch it really oh. it like the, the the sadness of this film really got to me and it was really beautiful, but like it was really affecting on this rewatch. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> As someone that is now um, 42 years old, queer and single. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It definitely does. Uh, but I, I think this, this movie, the way, what I love about it is the way that it ends up grouping um, a queer man, a mute woman and um a black woman together to pull off this heist for this creature that is looked at as other as well. And so that's one thing that I, I think in general, not just with queerness, but just in the way Guillermo del Toro handles um, outsiders and people who are in the marginalized parts of society. Really. I find it really affecting in this movie personally. Me too. Like talking about how these sort of outsiders are silenced and not 
heard to the point of even having Elsa's neck wounds be, we think, the reason why she's mute. And then coming full circle at the end where they become her gills, mm-hmm. it like, I was, I was a mess. Yeah. It was so affecting. God is such a beautiful movie. And something that I was always kind of mm, mad about, but also fascinated with, is there was such a positive response. People loved it so much. It was this historic genre win at the Oscars. I think it was the second movie, the second fantasy film ever to win Best Picture after the third Lord of the Rings film. And then after all of that, I think people got cool on it. Do you remember this happening not long after the Oscar sweep? I don't actually, no. My perception is is that people kind of turned on it, that it got too big too fast, and it was kind of like uncool to like it uncool to like it and i always that always kind of like stung me because i love it so much people are so fickle (laughs) they're little bitches um does it still hold up the same way like what five years later absolutely uh i saw this in the movie theater i saw it maybe once when it came out on blu-ray or whatever and then i have not revisited it since so it's it's probably been four years since i've seen this and yeah, I, it absolutely holds up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and I think that I, I think on a rewatch, I appreciate it a whole lot more too. just the, the intricate way the story unfolds mm-hmm. that maybe on my first watch when I was just, you know, appreciating it for the joy that it was, I was missing out on. And I think that's why you mentioned earlier that you got a little wist, misty eyed from the very opening. And I yep. think it's, I think coming back to it and you realize what the story is about when you hear Richard Jenkins giving us this, oh like once God. upon a time, yeah. it will bring you back to the end of the movie immediately. Ugh. And so I think on a rewatch, I can understand getting, you know, caught up in the moment with that because you know, what's coming. I was hysterical. I was like, I need to call my therapist. Something, no. something was wrong. Um, before we head into conclusion territories, I want to ask about how this film handled its sexuality in your opinion, because I remember that was like a big talking point when it came out, because there is some sort of vague interspecies, you know, sex in the film. And do you think it was handled like poetically or was there an element of camp to it? Like, do you think it works? Uh, Honestly, I wanted to see them go at it. (laughs) (laughs) Because they like, we see some like pretty, um, like there's masturbation in this film. They're not holding yeah. back from that. There's nudity in the film. They're not holding back from that. I don't know if audiences would have been able to handle that though. Actual Give sex. us Gilman Dick. I know. Well, they they talk about it pretty explicitly, or at least they like. Uh, I love the hand gestures she hand, makes for yeah. it. Well, I I didn't remember if we saw it or not because I guess I remembered the hand gestures, but I didn't remember that's how it was presented. I just kind of, rem- I knew, the inf- I had the information that that's how, but I didn't remember how I knew that. And I was like, okay, so she tells me. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually just think it was like, even the sex for this, in this film, and even the masturbation in this film was just like, kind of romantic and kind of mm-hmm. wholesome and kind of nice. As as ridiculous, so you, you mentioned camp, as ridiculous as it is that she stuffs... <laughs> you know, towels under her door and is able to fill up. The... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You as, gotta go with it. As campy as that is, it does create in a, 
in a in a very small microcosm the shot that i think enticed young Guillermo del Toro from the very beginning of you know the woman floating and the creature floating underneath her like we get that yeah it's more vertical than horizontal but like it's still that kind of moment that I think he wanted to create and I think this was probably the only way that he could do it within the confines of the story I think so too but then you also get even though they're nude that moment of where Richard Jenkins comes in and they're just holding each other Mm -hmm. and she's just so happy and he's happy for her oh god I'm happy for her. I'm happy for her too. And but he's looking at like at least some one of us has found love. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking. This movie is fucking heartbreaking. And he like risks it all because he doesn't believe it's going to happen for him and honestly 1962 like it wasn't. No, it wasn't. So he had to sacrifice so she could and that's really nice even though now she's under the under the sea. <laughs> I'm assuming which okay, you mentioned interspecies. I don't. I don't think it's interspecies. I think she uh-huh. is. I think she's a gill woman. She's gill woman for sure. She's bride. That was one thing man. that like all my coworkers would be like. You saw that movie, and I was like, yeah. And like, isn't that the monster fucking movie? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, it I is actually. Yeah. See, I think <laughs> yeah, it is. That? Hey, well, that's how I feel. That there's nothing wrong with it. But I, 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 you're right. The, he is humanoid, and she is fishoid but you know there's a there there's a bridge between the two and i'm okay with it i'm okay with it it's consensual listen this is this you're talking to someone that was like yeah i want to i would i would date the predator from prey um who from prey the predator predator from prey Prey. i was like (laughs) i guess that makes the most sense um i don't know if i would i found the bone mask to be really gross <laughs> it was really icky 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 but i feel Just you it was the hottest it. of all the predators so yeah yeah well the guy the that hair. was playing him was hot too i Holy don't know cow. if i've ever seen what the Oof. guy looks like I'll, yeah. I'll i'll send it to you once we're done with this he's a very attractive man okay i'm excited to see but um that was a good movie too and and even though he is kind of an animal he's intelligent enough to give consent and so everything's fine exactly everything's fine i guess on that note terry where can you be found on the internet uh you can find me on twitter as long as it's still existing at gaily dreadful mm-hmm. um as well as on instagram and if you want to listen to us talk to people about a movie that traumatized them as a child including host of this show josh Forgut, <laughs> uh go listen to scarred for life at scarred podcast on twitter as well yeah it's the best. Well, thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.